0: Thank you, Pastor Ray, and uh, worship team for leading us in that time of worship, through song as well as through communion. Uh, hopefully you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, everyone. Uh, you had uh, opportunities to spend time with family and friends and loved ones. Uh, I was just uh, reading an article about uh, at least the younger generation, that's the majority of you I hear, Uh, Instead of celebrating Thanksgiving, I mean, you guys have Thanksgiving, I'm sure, but, you know, you guys have more, it's more popular among you to have Friendsgiving. I was curious about that. Since you're all young out there, most of you are young. At least the rest of you are young at heart, I'm sure. Uh, How many of you had a Friendsgiving this year? Friendsgiving. Wow. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, The rest of me. That's kind of cool. This is interesting interesting uh, yeah so do we so <laughs> anyways uh if you take your uh, take your bibles and turn with me to the book of luke and i just want to again extend a warm welcome to our guest visit i didn't get a chance to go back and greet you uh, glad to have you with us this morning and for those of you who didn't get a chance to stand up but you're here visiting with us for a second or just returning uh, on occasion, visitors. I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, so many of you are back for just this weekend. And so we're glad to have you worship with us, uh, the, Lord will, the Lord willing with So you go back to where it is that you spend in the majority of your weeks. Uh, we hope that uh, you'll get plugged into a good, uh, growing, healthy, vibrant Bible teaching, Christ-centered church that uh, can help you grow in the Lord. All right. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36 is where we'll be this morning, Luke 9, 28 to 36. And this is the familiar story of the transfiguration of Jesus. And so I I think it's a, I believe it's one of those, again, one of the very familiar, it's a very powerful kind of a uh, uh, passage that describes this event in the life of the disciples. Luke 9, 28 through 36. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for uh, this book of Luke uh, that reveals to us Jesus, that we might be assured of the things that we have learned about him, that we might know for certain the truths that we believe about Christ. And God, we do pray that your spirit would fill us this morning, that your spirit would teach us this morning from your word and use this passage of the transfiguration of Jesus to show us more of who Jesus is. To give us a greater understanding of who, of who he is, his true nature, that we, so that we would be strengthened and encouraged to live our lives boldly, unashamedly for Christ. And God, we pray that this season, as we have just concluded our Thanksgiving celebrations and our beginning our Christmas celebrations, we pray for you to open up doors for us. In our different, in our communities, in our families, our school, workplaces, so that where we might have the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. And Lord, when we, as we do so, may you give us a, 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 uh, your leading so and an open door so that the gospel w- would fall upon uh, hearts and be well prepared for the message that we bring. And Lord, help us be faithful to bring that message to Christ Get him crucified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In, uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, God would appear to the Israelites. And probably when he appears, we would often describe it as his, he would show them his glory, or his glory would be revealed. In the Old Testament, uh, probably the, one of the more visible manifestations of God was in the glory of the cloud. Remember when the Israelites exited out of Egypt and they... Uh, and they were wandering, uh, heading towards Mount Sinai or, or in the wilderness, God would go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of cloud by day, just imagine what that might look like, a pillar of cloud, just this, um, uh, this amazing pillar of cloud that probably goes up into the heavens, and then at night, that pillar of cloud would become a, a pillar of fire, in a sense, maybe the same still cloud, but it would be lit up by fire and the, the, the glory of God, and and, that, uh, and, then, uh, and so it was something that was very visible for Israel. Said, wherever they would look, they'd see the pillar of cloud. Wherever they'd look, they'd see the pillar of fire. And they would know very well that God was in their midst. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I don't know about you and me, but I mean, we well, probably, there's a part of it where we're like, I'm terrified of God's presence was that visible and close to, us as, a pe- to, our, to our, us as a people. But yet it would be amazing to see a visible manifestation of God's presence on earth and God's glory. Now, that glory of God eventually uh, uh, settled in one particular place when he gave instructions to the Israelites to build a tabernacle. And there in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, the, that tent, whichever, wherever they carried it, God's glory would dwell there whenever he would meet with Moses or with, man, with uh, the chief pri- or the priests. Eventually, the tabernacle was placed by the temple. And in the temple, there God's glory dwelt. I want to read for you uh, just a, a passage out of 2 Chronicles chapter seven, verses one to three, that describes the, how the glory of God dwelt in the temple, just to get a sense of the, this is the magnificence of that moment. 2 Chronicles chapter seven, verse one to three. Now when Solomon had finished praying, so was, he'd finished the temple and he prayed, dedicated the temple, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. That's the temple. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, truly, he is good. Truly, his loving kindness is everlasting. See, when the temple was built, the glory of the Lord came down and dwelt there. And three times you see the glory of the Lord dwelt in the house. And you see the response of God's people. It was associated with fire and light. And, just, and, uh, and that it was so, um, this light was so powerful that the priests could not enter into the house because there was God. It was, whether they, they, even if they wanted to, they could not go. But probably they didn't want to because that, it was such a terrifying to see the presence of the Lord. Uh, and even in uh, this, uh, even in this theophany form, it wasn't really his actual, you know, he, it wasn't actually you could actually see what God looked like because God is spirit, but it was a manifestation of His presence, of as we call this a theophany. And uh, and so when they saw the theophany, they all bowed down worship. That temple became, of course, the place where God. People would go to worship God. There they would go to meet God because God's presence was there in the, the, the holy of holies of the temple. This came, uh, eventually became known as the Shekinah glory. In Hebrew culture, it's called the Shekinah glory of God. And it was a magnificent sight. A magnificent sight. to Certainly, to, uh, as you serve the Lord, to be visually reminded that God was in their midst. So then, it must have been a grievous time when according to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, a couple chapters, the first couple chapters, but particularly Ezekiel chapter 10, when the glory of God there uh, through the vision to Ezekiel basically lifted up from the Holy Holies, left the temple, went to the threshold of the temple, and eventually went to the mountain to the east of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and there it went up and went back to Glory. Due to the sinfulness of Israel, due to the idolatry of Israel, due to their, the, their sin against their fellow men, the, their constant rebellion, their constant unrepentance, the glory of the Lord had enough. He would not tolerate their sin. He, the glory of the Lord left the temple as a symbolic reminder that God was leaving them. He was gonna, they were going to be basically pretty soon uh, given into captivity to Babylon. And for 600 years, Israel would not see God's glory among them. 600 years. How many generations is that? You know, what was a, what was a memory? Became a legend. Became a legend. Became a myth. No one even won, except the fact that they had the scriptures it was not something that anyone was familiar with at all. That one could actually see God, or God's glory among them. Until Jesus arrived, the Apostle John writes how Jesus showed us God's glory, or revealed God's glory. John wrote, "And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full." Of grace and truth. John not only saw Jesus as the Word become flesh, he was not just the Godhead veiled in flesh, right? But John also had the opportunity to see Jesus' glory unveiled, to see a bit of the glory of, uh, the glory of God the Father leaking out of Jesus, come in Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is our text today. It would be a moment that's forever etched in the mind of John and and Peter and James as well, encouraging them to faithfully love and serve and follow Jesus, to not be ashamed of Jesus. The passage is written for a specific very purpose. For that purpose, to encourage the disciples to not be ashamed. And if we're honest, there are times when we are tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. We're, tempted, we're ashamed of Jesus when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel and you're, you have an opportunity. But then, for whatever reason, you, you kind of hold back. You draw back. You think, oh, I, I don't want to offend this person. I'm going to tell them that they're a sinner. We're all sinners. Sometimes we hold back when it's expression some biblical convictions that we may have. And then when we are ashamed of Jesus and his word, we will shy away from speaking the truth, God's truth. Speaking of, away, speaking of Jesus as we ought. Today's passage is designed to encourage brothers and sisters, you and me, to not be ashamed of Jesus. He calls us so very clearly in the, past, in the previous passage. Jesus began to teach his disciples the very difficult road of following him. If you want to come after me, Jesus says, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, deny yourself take up your cross, and follow me, he said. Basically, he said the life of a follower of Jesus Christ is a life of self-denial a life of sacrifice and a life of submission to him and he gave several warnings and he said particularly the, the warning in verse uh, at in uh, verse 26 or if whoever is ashamed of me and my words the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels so there he knows that as disciples of Christ, there will be times when we are tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. His disciples would be ashamed of him. Remember what Peter would do when Jesus on the very night that Christ was arrested and betrayed. There will be times that we are we will feel tempted to be ashamed. And Jesus, knowing that, here in, verse 20, in the verse 27, encouraged them, the disciples. He said to them, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He offers a, an encouragement to the Peter, James, John, and other disciples that among some, them, even though they might give their life even, die for Jesus' sake, he wants them to know that the kingdom of God is real. This kingdom that they're hoping for is real. Though they may not see it in this life, he wants them to know that it is a reality that it's true. And so he, he, he takes them up to the mountain in the verses 28 and all the way to 36 is this revelation where he reveals himself to them and through it encourages them to be not ashamed of him. And for us, I hope it will encourage you and me to know that Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. And Jesus said, right, you, you want to save your soul? You must lose your life. When you came to Jesus you might not have thought about that, but it is what, in effect, following Jesus means. That you will give your life over to lip for lip for the Lord. Many of us just came, well, I just I just came for the free eternal life. I just want I just to came for the ticket. I didn't know that it would cost me my whole life. In a sense, it cost Jesus his whole life. But it hopefully as you understand, it is out of love for the Lord, a love for Jesus that you would live your life for him because he's worthy he's worthy. I want you to know he's worthy i was uh, so today, as we look at this passage to this transfiguration of Jesus, we're going to find four elements of this transfiguration four elements story very familiar story, I think to many of us, but uh, I was wrestling with it because when we study the Gospels, boy, I, hope, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I, I wrestle with familiarity. I wrestle with, like, oh, I, I kind of know what this is. I know this point. And then sometimes I know it intellectually. And I hope that as I explain it to you and, and the spirit of God will take it, he'll grip your heart with it. It's a, a mind, a grippy truth that will just grip you in your heart. So four elements of Jesus' transfiguration that encourage his disciples to not be ashamed of following him. Are you ashamed of following him? Are you at are times when you're ashamed of him following him? Then remember who Jesus is. Remember the transfiguration. Let's take a look then at these four elements. Element number one is the most obvious, the most visible, and that is his appearance. We see that there's a transformation, a change in Jesus' appearance in the transfiguration, verse 28 to 29. Let's read verse 28 to 29 with me. Or you can look in your Bibles, I'll read. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different. His clothing became white and gleaming. Verse 28 is the setting. It's the setting for this particular event. Notice the specific mention of some eight days after these sayings. Therefore, when the mention of eight days after these sayings it tells us that what takes place now is connected with what just was said before. And that's why we believe that. That's why we're preaching this as Jesus is teaching these, or is bringing this transfigure so that in fulfillment of verse 27, but it's before verse 27, that that is an encouragement for them not to be ashamed, that they would live the lives that Jesus calls us to live for him. Uh, Interestingly, uh, it says eight days after these things. So some eight days after Jesus said these things, but if you kind of do a harmony of the Gospels, there's a kind of a, um, a problem in the text, at least a parent problem, a parent conflict. In Matthew and Mark's uh, parallel passage, you'll notice Matthew 16, Mark chapter 9. And in those, uh, they both mention six days later. So here it's eight days six days. So you know of course it's not doesn't mean that there's error in the Bible. there's always an explanation sometimes the different gospel writers write with a different focus and the most uh, common explanation for why Luke writes eight days versus six days whereas Matthew and Mark actually record the six days in between uh, two events, whereas Luke probably includes those two events, it includes the day of Jesus' instruction, the verse of the, the sayings, and it includes then the day, of, actually the day of the actual transfiguration, thus making six days plus the two days, eight days. And that's one possible explanation. But anyways, uh, eight days later, or one week later, approximately a week later after these sayings, he then took Peter and John and James, three of his closest disciples, with them up to the mountain to pray. Now we might wonder why, why does he take three? I mean, they are his closest disciples; they're the ones who are o- often with him. Uh, why not? Why didn't he take all twelve? Why not take six or, or nine or, or however many? Why not? Why just these three? Probably because that was the, maybe just the, what was an, a minimum to serve as a, a testimony, as a witness. Uh, according to Deuteronomy chapter 19, 15, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so uh, these, there were three witnesses. They could confirm it, they could all testify. And uh, both, it's interestingly here, we'd find out that uh, Peter. Through the Gospel of Mark, it's believed that Mark is records a lot of Peter's words, and and uh, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, uh, these and later on he writes in and Peter. Peter actually writes in First Peter, and uh, John himself will, will testify of this that they could see that they saw God's glory. As for the mountain, it's, which mountain is it? It's unspecified. I don't know if you ever go, some of you probably have gone to the Holy Land. Maybe they took you up to one of the mountains. Uh, I'm not sure what mountain they did Mount Tabor, maybe Mount Hermon. These are all possible mentions. There's a, the third mountain as well. Um, you know, we don't know for sure. But the more, the, the more common answer these days among modern common, uh, day commentators is Mount Hermon in the, uh, near Caesarea Philippi. Uh, but eight days later, so he could have gone on anywhere. Right? You can travel pretty far at seven seven or six days or so. So it could have been Mount Hermon. could have stuck in that area. It could have gone to Mount Tabor or whatever. Uh, but a mountain. And he goes up there to pray. Remember when we talk about Luke and when he mentions Jesus praying, it's a significant because Luke often associates Jesus praying with some significant new thing. And here Jesus is praying because he's, he's praying because he knows that he's was communing with God the Father. Obviously, he's always doing that. But there's a significant change because he's about to introduce or reveal himself to his disciples. Reveal a little bit of his true nature to his disciples. And what is this transformation that takes place? And while he was praying, his appearance begins to change. All of a sudden, his face becomes different. All of a sudden, you know, it, it, Luke doesn't quite say. It just says the appearance of his face became different. That's kind of understated, really. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but Matthew, uh, Matthew tells us that his face shone like the sun. The sun. Now I know you can't really stare at the sun, you know, but you can look at the sun, right? You can look up the sun. It's ooh, that's really bright. It's like, I mean, I'm looking at this light, and I, I don't even like to look at it. You know, this is bright light over here, but the sun is even brighter when well, it's blocked by clouds today. But on a bright, on a sunny day, you look at the sun, you glance up. You can't look at it for too long. It's just too bright, and that's way, way, way up there, you know, far away. Jesus was right there in their presence, and His face shone like the sun. In fact, it was probably so bright that Peter and James and John couldn't have been able to look at it directly for long. Just like this, we can't look at the sun for long. And not only was Jesus' face changing to shine like the sun, but so was his clothing. Uh, Luke tells us that here that his clothing became white and gleaming. Gleaming. It was, it was bright. It was so radiant, so white. Mark adds the interesting comment that they were whiter than any launderer on earth could whiten them. That's man. Mark, maybe Mark was a launderer or something like that. No, no, he, like he knew. But Jesus changed before them. He was trans, transformed in front of them. He basically starts shining like the sun, essentially. Matthew and Mark will use the term transfigured. That's why we call this the transfiguration. Luke doesn't use that word. He just says, he just looked different. <laughs> uh, but it's called the transfiguration in Matthew and Mark. The, trans, the word for transfigured is the Greek word from which we get our word, metamorphosis so jesus went through a, a metamorphosis if you will it's this word metamorphosis is, is kind of something we've seen in other places we've seen it in romans 12 verse 2 for instance where paul instructs us uh, to do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind be metamorphosized by the renewing that is somehow you as a believer in christ are to be changed you're to be changed in how you live and how you conduct yourself, to, because uh, in the world, as your mind is changed, the word essentially as often means a visible change of the outward form that reflects in the inner nature. So it's on outwardly changing to reflect what's on the inside, and that's exactly what happened with Jesus' body. His body was becoming transformed to reflect his true nature. He as a human being, uh, we read in Philippians chapter 2, all right, How Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a and being found in the likeness of men. Part of his humility, part of his emptying of himself involved limiting himself. Limiting himself, not allowing his glory to be seen as God in, in, in the pre- when he was in, in glory in, in heaven with God the Father, but to have it covered, to have it limited. And that would mean limit his attributes. He would limit himself In the body of a finite man. God's glory was hidden in Jesus' flesh. It was veiled. But at this moment, transfiguration, for the first time, the only time in Jesus' life and ministry, does anyone get to see a glimpse of his glory revealed? That's the glory that was in the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the glory that was in the tabernacle, the glory that was in the temple, that glory, the glory of God, was now manifest, is manifest in this man that was before Peter, James, and John, and it was, it was like. Uh. The best thing i can describe is is the movies you know it's like those you know those uh uh well it's like all of a sudden that the alien you know he's like looks like a human but on, inwardly he's just a bright glowing creature all of a sudden his his shell cracks and the light starts leaking out you know the, oh wow he's an alien well not he's not an alien but the glory of god was leaking was shining forth and it was glorious It was the brightness of the glory of God. Jesus' divine glory being manifest to these three disciples to see. This is the same glory that we will see when Jesus comes again. You and I don't get to see this in this life. Jesus is not going to come down and transfigure himself before you and me. Okay, He's not going to do that. But he did it for them so that they would record it, write it down. They could pass it on to generations. But so that we would know when we see that Jesus returns in glory, we know what that means. He'll return shining like the sun. And there's a passage in Revelation chapter uh, 1, verse 13 to 16 that describes Jesus' return in glory. And Revelation talks about the future, uh, the future and talks about description of Jesus Christ in the future. And it says here in verse 1, 13, 16, in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. That's the messianic title for Jesus clothed in a row, reaching to the feet, and girded across the chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like a burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So this is a picture of Jesus in all these scriptures. It's it's just this this brightness, this glow, and of course he's shining like the sun. And associated and it's showing him prepared, ready to come back to return to bring uh, to come again to earth. One commentator writes of Jesus' transfiguration. It was so well, I just, I'm just going to read it for you directly. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted. And his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface that one time in his earthly life. This was both a glance back into his pre human glory and a look forward into his future glory. This is the glory of our King, of our Messiah. This is the one in whom we look forward to returning again. This is the one in whom we follow. You know, a lot of times we think of Jesus as being a man. We're going to celebrate Christmas. We're going to see. We think of Jesus as a little baby. We're going to think of him as a human baby. We're going to think of him as a human man, a 30-year-old doing ministry. We think of him as a little carpenter. Think of him as a little teenage boy wandering around the temple. We think of him as, oftentimes just in his humanity. And that's definitely part of who Jesus is. That's We can relate with that. But we would be mistaken if we only see Jesus as a man. There's a part of Jesus... That here he is completely 100 percent God. And if it were not that he was veiled in human humanity, we would be awestruck by his glory. Would be, we, would, we, would, we would not be able to look upon him because of the, the glory of his, of his majesty. He who is brighter than the sun will one day shine his glorious light all over this world, and at that when he does that, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. But for now, brothers and sisters, you and I who follow Jesus Christ have the great privilege to shine his light into our corner of the world. To tell others about the light of the world who has come. And brothers and sisters, yes, there are times that we may feel ashamed, be embarrassed, wonder, are hesitant. Maybe someone's going to reject what we have to say. And this season is a great opportunity to do so. But, and if we are tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and his words, then let us remember of who Jesus truly is. And this in his transfiguration, he revealed the glory of God. This is our King. But not only do we see his nature revealed in his appearance, the transfiguration, but it was also revealed in the company that he kept, or the company that was with him at the moment. That's the second point, the second element of the transfiguration. That's his company. Who was with him at this moment? We're not talking about uh, Peter, James and John. We verse 30 and 31. Two individuals are here with them, and behold, two men were talking with him. and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Two men are talking with Jesus. And of all the men that could be talking with Jesus, it was Moses and Elijah, two men, two Old Testament saints who had long passed from the scene. Questions the commentators often ask is, why are these two? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Why not Abraham and David, right? Two guys with David, some covenants after their name. Why not Adam, the first man? Why not Noah, the the really the guy who the God started the human race again over after the flood? Why not those two? Why Moses and Elijah? Well, some have seen in Moses and Elijah basically a reference to the law and the prophets. Moses being represented of the law, Elijah being represented of the prophets. Both the law, the books of the law, the books of the prophets all basically point to Jesus. And certainly the law and the prophets do that. We we know that from Luke 24 when Jesus explains to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. While that's possible, I don't believe that's the main point of Moses and Elijah. Uh, what do we find, uh, what, kind of, what kind of similarities do we find with Moses and Elijah and Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration? There are a couple. First of all, both Moses and Elijah conversed with God on mountaintops, just like Jesus is doing here. The both, In fact, Moses and Elijah, they both met with God on Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. They both on the mountain of Mount Sinai saw a revelation of God's glory. Moses behind the cleft of the rock. Uh, uh, Elijah would see it in, in the different, uh, in, the, in the whispering of the, of the wind. Both, uh, what's more, so not only did they both meet God on the mountain, they saw his glory. But both also had an unusual departure from the world. Both had an unusual departure. Moses uh, he died, right? We know that he died on Mount Nebo. He did not get to go into the promised land. He saw it, but he died. But it's a really interesting comment about him is that in Deuteronomy 34, 6, it tells us there that he was buried by God himself. That's pretty cool, right? How many people can say, I was buried by God? God buried me. So the, the comment there is like, no one knows where he was buried, essentially, because we, you know, if I didn't, you know, if I hadn't read that verse, I would have thought, well, Joshua must have buried Moses. But the word of God says God buried him. So that's unique about Moses. What about Elijah? Well, Elijah, his is even pretty more amazing. Uh, he didn't actually die. Well, not in the typical way that we die. He was actually taken up into heaven on a chariot of fire. And that would be cool. Uh, sometimes I hope that maybe, you know, when I die, that's, I get to ride a chariot of fire. But that's probably not going to happen. But nevertheless, both departed from this world in an unusual way. It was a very unique way. But most significantly, common with Moses and Elijah, what's common between the two of them in relation to Jesus is that they were both associated with messianic hope. Both associated with the coming Messiah. Remember, uh, we've mentioned it before in passages. I'll put two verses. According to Deuteronomy 18.15, the Messiah would be a, a, a prophet who would come one day who would be just like Moses? We read that in IT 15. Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's like Moses, from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. So that became a, a prophecy. They would they would also want, is he, are you the prophet? And they would wonder, they asked John the Baptist, are you the, the prophet, the messianic prophet? And then as far as Elijah goes, according to Malachi chapter 4, or 5, Elijah was expected to always be the forerunner for the Messiah. Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before the, before the king comes to establish his kingdom to judge the world, he will send Elijah. And so, the presence then here, Jesus being transfigured on this mountain with Moses and Elijah, they're all talking together, is an indication then that the Messiah is here. And the Messiah is not Moses, the Messiah is not Elijah, but the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Luke uh, Luke is really interesting. I love studying Luke because Luke will often, is, often adds little details that are not found in Matthew and Mark. And he alone here, of, in contrast with the parallel, tells us the subject of Jesus' discussion. What does Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus about? You know, all the things they could talk about. They could talk about, wow, you know, hey, it's really good in heaven. We really miss you, Jesus. We hope you come back, you know. Uh, right. But it says here that they were talking to him. They were speaking of his, what? His departure. His departure. And this was just so like, what kind of departure? Is he going to, you know, leave for some place? And it's a departure that would take place in Jerusalem. So some, some kind of departure that Jesus is going to take from Jerusalem now, we know over the period of Jesus' three-year ministry, he would often go into Jerusalem on all the, the ma- uh, major, uh, major events, particularly Passover. He would go in and then he would leave. Go in and leave. And then he would go in and he would die. But he would go in. So is it one of those departures that when he leave? No. The context and the clue, particularly in light of just the whole passage, is that this departure that is going to take place in Jerusalem is really a reference. They're speaking of Jesus' death. Jesus' death, his passing, his, his coming death. And now, if, as far as for confirmation of that, we actually get confirmation of that. Because this the word departure is the word, by the way, it just means it's the word exodus. I'm not sure if that's significant, but particularly with Moses here as well. But Peter will use this very exact same word. It's only found like four times in the New three times, Three, four times in the New Testament. But Peter will use it. And where will he use it? In 2 Peter 1.15. And he uses it, and he'll talk about his own departure, referring to his own impending death. And he uses this term right before, right before he talks about what he remembers about the Transfiguration. And so it's just a clue that he understood that when, this, when Moses and Elijah were talking about Jesus' departure from Jerusalem, that they were speaking of Jesus death. Jesus) <clears throat> And, and this was a message that you and I today take for granted. That's why it's so hard sometimes to get the grip on this. You and I take Jesus' death for granted. We see the cross, we say, "Oh, that's nice. I'm going to put it around my neck." You know, this is so common to us. But the idea of Jesus, the King, being crucified was a foreign, almost unimaginable concept to the everyday Jewish person. Jesus, the messianic king, would go to Jerusalem and instead of being crowned as everyone expected him, would be crucified for the sin of the world? No, that can't be. That's a stumbling block to many Jewish people. That's not what they expect of their king. But Luke records the discussion between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus about Jesus' impending death because Luke wants his readers. Because this became something right? This is why many people rejected Jesus. Look at him. He was a criminal. If he was really Messiah, he would have just established his kingdom right there and then. Why does he die? It just shows that he was just an everyday criminal. He really was a blasphemer. But Luke wants his audience to know that, no, yes, he is a king who was crucified, but it was always meant to be that way. Moses and Elijah knew that, and that's why they were talking to Jesus about it. It has always been, this is, Jesus' death was no accident. It was, oh, no, things just didn't work out. Oh, okay, he died. Uh, it wasn't plan B, God's plan B. Oh, I'm, hmm, okay, ooh, that's tricky. They did that, so I'm going to do this. God in his providence in his sovereignty always had plan a 1a a you know that the number one plan was that Jesus his son would come to die to come to suffer would come to be to, instead of crowned to be crucified Jesus had already told his disciples that his death that his death was coming back in verse 22 Up to this point, Jesus had been prioritizing the preaching of the kingdom of God. But when many failed, had to grasp that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you had to have your sins forgiven. You had to have your sins resolved. You had to have them uh, propitiated, paid for, redeemed. And no one can do that themselves. And that's why Christ came to die. Because he came to die for your sins and mine so that you through faith in him and his work on the cross might enter into his kingdom. And this, is, and this is encouragement to us, because if our Lord, if our king denied himself, took up his cross, and submitted to the will of his father, then it is, that should encourage us, So that should make, at least make it a little more understandable that it would be quite normal and maybe even expected That his followers too, and following after him, would do the same. Jesus will prepare his disciples for this kind of life. He prepares them to live lives of self-denial, sacrifice, and submission. Because that's the life that Jesus came to live. Luke is kind of just FYI. It's going to be really neat as we go from 9 through 19. Luke, compared to all the other gospels, spends a significant amount of his gospel just on those six-month period where Jesus focuses on the 12 and preparing them for his inevitable death, his, his, his departure. That's what he's going to do from 9 to 19, all the way until he gets to Jerusalem. But Jesus' company, who he shows up with, shows us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one whom you and I don't need to be ashamed of. This is the one whom all the prophets, who Moses and Elijah, yes, point to, but by their very presence shows that he is the Messiah. And then thirdly, uh, we see we can be encouraged to not be ashamed of Jesus by his disciples, by Jesus' disciples. A third element. Peter's companions. it says verse 32, had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Now the disciples, were, they were sleeping. Um, maybe it was late at night, they, they were asleep. And so eventually they awake. And once they wake, kind of, you know, when you wake up, you're kind of groggy. Uh, and then all of a sudden they see, this, it's like the sun is in their face, right? Because it's Jesus. Being glo- and next to him are two people. And for whatever reason, they actually are able to identify those two people as Moses and Elijah. Perhaps supernaturally, maybe they've been listening to the conversation, and so they could hear that this was Moses and Elijah. But Peter responds in characteristic fashion first. And in characteristic fashion, as he responds first, he he puts his foot in his mouth. Now, we know he puts his foot in his mouth because it tells us that he says something. Master, it's good for us to be here. Uh, Let me build three tents for you. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Luke adds this comment. Not realizing what he was saying. Basically, he didn't realize he made a mistake. He didn't realize he made a he said something he shouldn't have said. Right? That's what that's what it's that's what it means by that. Not realizing what he was saying. Now, there are two possible reasons, uh, two possible is that what it was that was wrong about what he was saying. Because to tell you the truth, when I heard it when I read this the first time, I thought, oh, Peter's a nice guy, right? You know, hey, just like If I saw, you know, if, you know, right, if you saw Pastor Henry, Pastor Ray, Pastor Roger walking down the front of your house, wouldn't you say, hey, come on, man, let me build you three, ta- you know, three tabernacles for you? <laughs> wouldn't you invite them in for coffee, right? You know, you'd like make, make them feel comfortable. I just thought Peter was, hey, I'm going to make you comfortable. I just really thought that, okay? So maybe. Is that, is that the idea? But no, that, that, maybe that was his intention, but what he said still conveyed some errors. The first possible uh, error that he was made was that it was wrong for Peter to basically to, to on his own offer to make a more permanent dwelling for the three of them. It essentially reflected a wrong view of the Messiah's purpose. He had a wrong view of the Messiah's purpose. Peter was still, of course, under the press, just like every other Jewish person, that Jesus, the Messiah, Messiah was going to come and establish his kingdom on earth, right? He's going to become a king. He's going to be a political ruler. He's going to kick out the Romans. He's going to kick out the Egyptians. He's going to kick out anybody else, the Greeks. He's going to just rule and reign over the rule from right on the throne of Jerusalem. And wherever this mountain is, well, maybe Peter thought, well, I guess this mountain is as good as any to start your reign. Let me make you a more permanent dwelling. Let me put tents up here so you guys can be comfortable, but by offering to build the tents, Peter was essentially opposing Jesus' purpose. And his purpose was to die. Jesus' purpose was not in this first coming to get comfortable. He was not going to stay there in that particular place and say, hey, this is a nice place. Let's stay here. Peter had often, he made this mistake already earlier when Jesus asked him, uh <clears throat> when, when Jesus told them that he was going to suffer and be betrayed, and be killed and, uh, by the Jewish religious, religious leaders, in Matthew's, the parallel account Matthew, Peter says, no, n- never, you can never do that. May never. Don't even speak of that. And then Jesus says to him, quite surprisingly, Matthew 16, 23, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not sending your mind on God's interest, but man's. See, Peter had set his mind on his own desire. His own plan for what the Messiah should do, instead of God's plan for the Messiah. As, you know, for you and me, brothers, and sisters, as disciples today, we can fall in the same mistake too. We all say we fo- we all follow Jesus, but sometimes we're tempted to follow Jesus as the kind of and the plan that we think he ought to have for our life. We think that maybe Jesus, when we think about Christ, when we tell his, story. Why did Christ? What's Christ's purpose for coming? Do do we tell people? You know, when we tell people about Jesus, do we say, hey, you know? I follow Jesus because I find that his teaching is just full of wisdom, right? I mean, he's so wise. A lot of things that do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I find that's just a really, his teachings are so helpful. And I think if you would follow Jesus, you could follow those, follow those teachings too, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the main thing. We could also say that, well, Jesus came, you know, Jesus came so it really just set an example for us. As I tell people about Jesus, I say, you know, Jesus really... He really was a great example. He inspires me because he gave his life for others. You know, and I want to live my life for others. Nothing wrong with that, right? But that's not what, primarily why Jesus came. That's not the purpose. Or we say that he inspired us. We would be wrong to, if we would make it primary that Jesus Christ merely to teach us, set an example, or inspire us. Or when, worse, we make Jesus to, to, to basically be someone who satisfies all our all our all our desires, he, Jesus comes to make us happy, or rich, or or you know, or full, or fulfilled in you know in our, in our in our according to our ways. Christ came for one singular purpose, and that is to die. Jesus Christ came to be crucified for our sins. The plan of God has always been that Jesus would come to die. To deliver us from sin. To save us. So that we might live. A life. Where we deny ourselves. Take up our cross. And follow him. To live for. Not this life. But a life that is to come. A life that is. will be far better. Than this life. Now. That was. First mistake was, number one, is that he had mistaken, had a wrong a wrong understanding of Jesus' purpose. The second mistake that Jesus that Peter makes is that basically reflected in a wrong view of the Messiah's rank. He had a wrong view because he offered to build a tabernacle for Jesus, for Moses, for Elijah. You can just picture it. I'll put one, three, one, boom, 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 right here, and you can have one, and you can have one, and you can have one. But in essence, what he does, when he does that, he, he puts... Jesus has the same rank as Moses and Elijah. Now, as great as, as Moses and Elijah were, they do not compare with Jesus Christ, do they? Now, Moses was a great man, particularly in the Jewish faith. He was the giver of the law. He was the deliverer of Israel, uh, deliver, uh, would le- delivered Israel out of, out of Egypt. As great as he was, he, was not, he is not as great as Christ. Elijah, too, similarly, was, uh, was a great prophet of God, fought the prophets of Baal, but he too is not Jesus, not the Christ. They are not the creator of the universe. Jesus is. They are not the Christ. Jesus is. They are not God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus is. And Jesus' transfiguration would have made that clear. But for Peter to offer to build three tabernacles, one for each of them, put Jesus on the same rank as them. And this encourage, should encourage you and me that, to remember that Jesus is no mere man; he is he, he is a man, 100 percent man, but he's no mere man. He's no one we, and he's not something we should be ever be ashamed of. He is worthy to be followed. And almost as a responding to Peter's comments, this comment about building three equal tabernacles for Moses, Jesus, and Elijah, the Father enters in and speaks in this in this fourth and final element to. Uh, to encourage uh, his, the Jesus' disciples to follow Jesus. Verse 34 36, While he was saying this, a cloud formed began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent reported no one in those days any of the things which they had seen." The cloud that entered here form is just, again, it's the glory cloud of God. It was God's presence. It was being manifest now. And in fact, it enveloped all of them. Enveloped Jesus, Moses, Elijah, the, the, the three disciples, on that mount, mountaintop. It was a visible manifestation of God's presence. And it tells us, verse 34, the disciples were afraid as they entered this cloud. Not only were they afraid when the cloud enveloped, But they must be even more afraid when the voice started speaking out of this cloud. For the voice came out of the cloud saying, and it it is pretty clear that it's directed to the disciples, Peter, James, and John, because he doesn't say, you are my son. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. A command you, Peter, you, James, you, John, listen to him. Interestingly, this uh, harkens back to Luke 3.22. At Jesus' baptism, God... Said, spoke. These are only two times that God speaks, uh, uh, and, and directly uh, in, in Jesus' lifetime. First is, uh, "You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased." He says that directly to Jesus. But here he says this to the apostles: "This is my beloved son. This is my son, my chosen one." God Himself basically showed up to testify to who Jesus is. You guys, you think he's just any other person like Moses and Elijah? No, you are mistaken. This is my son, my only begotten son. This is my chosen one. This is my beloved son. You make sure. You can listen to Moses. You read Moses, you follow him. You read Elijah, Elijah, and you can follow him. But you listen to what this man, Jesus, this is my son, says. By the way, this mention of God's, uh, God's chosen one, this wording recalls the prophecy of the messianic servant in Isaiah 42. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God there says of his mess, this is the, one of the uh, suffering, the servant uh, passages. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see that phrase, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. That's why sometimes when this passage is alluded to, here in Luke, it says, my chosen one. But remember when he tells, uh, even when he speaks to, to Jesus, he says, my beloved son. It really reflects that latter part of that verse, my, the one in whom my soul delights. Well, that's one, It means the one whom God loves. This one is God's beloved chosen son. It's his servant. It's the suffering servant, the Messiah that's been called. As great as Moses and Elijah were, they did not compare with Jesus, the Christ. Jesus is God's son, God's servant, God's messianic prophet, and he alone is to be obeyed. Remember the command that he gives them, listen to him? Do do you remember where that came from? Deuteronomy 18.15, right? When God promised, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you, from your countrymen, you shall... Listen to him. And God says, this is my prophet. This is the one, that, it, uh, that Moses. You listen to him. And so whatever Jesus says about discipleship, let's follow that. We need to follow that. Whatever God says about ministry, we need to follow him. Whatever God says about the life that we are to live as Christians in this world, let us follow him. Whatever, God, whatever Jesus says about the convictions that we are to have in this world, let us follow him. Whatever he calls us to do, let us follow him. Let us do it with, uh, with no shame, with boldness, because God the Father tells us, you listen to him. And as soon as God spoke, Matthew records that the disciples fell to the ground, and then the cloud, cloud was gone, Moses was gone, Elijah was gone, and the only one who left was Jesus. And the stunned silence of Peter, James, and John. They would not speak of it to anyone in those days until much later when they would then have it uh, pass it down and have it recorded. But in the transfiguration, they get a glimpse of who Jesus really is, truly is. They get a glimpse of his divine nature. They get a glimpse of his future glory when he returns to judge the world and establish his kingdom. And for the disciples then and for the readers of the gospel today, it, encourage, it should encourage us to not be ashamed of him and his words because Jesus is God's chosen one, He is God's Son. We do not make, need to make any apologies for Jesus and him being crucified, for sinners, of which all of us are. And brothers and sisters, if you follow Jesus and you are suffering for as you follow Jesus, be encouraged, because the one whom you suffered for suffered first for your sakes. But one day when he returns, he will come, or when, you, when he calls you home to be with him, he will relieve and deliver you from every suffering. The test, and we end, we'll end there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the encouragement. Lord, we know that the transfiguration shaped Peter, James, John's ministry, The whole, all the apostles' ministry. We pray as we study it this morning that you would cause it to shape ours. That you would help us to understand that Jesus is not just a mere man. That we not just think of him just as only a a man who was in weakness was crucified. But that though he was your son, though he was your chosen one, your beloved son, he was crucified for our sins. And this son who was raised and now seated at your right hand will one day return in glory. Glory as we see in the transfiguration. Shining like the sun with flaming fire and burning swords and ready to judge all wickedness and evil. And God, help us to be faithful. To tell others about the deliverance that is found from that judgment through faith and submission to Jesus Christ, the Lord. Father, in this Christmas season, give us open doors and opportunities and help us to be courageous to tell others about Jesus and help us not be ashamed and help us to take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow him. These things we pray in Jesus' name for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.